Hi everyone, you're listening to EFG's podcast Beyond the Benchmark. This is Moz Afsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And today we have uh, EFG Chief Economist, uh, Stefan Gerlach. Uh, Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so much going on in uh, central bank world as well as worries about inflation and interest rates and tapering and so on and so forth. So a huge amount of uh, activity at the moment, uh, a very uh, unusual period. But uh, we are going to try and unravel all of uh, all of the, all of that complexity and uh, hopefully make it very easy for our listeners to uh, to figure out what's happening next. So, for those of you who don't know, Stefan Stefan was uh, the deputy governor of Central Bank of Ireland at one point and was worked for very esteemed central banks over the years, as well as uh, I don't know what you call them, public private partnerships. Uh, as well so yeah. we'll um we're going to sort of tap stefan's brain so uh, stefan obviously we the fed has unusually been very transparent and if i compare um the tapering saga of 2013 where where um you know there was a a huge uncertainty around you know interest rate increases and tapering and and uh, how that was handled in that period where this time round, I think Powell, I think we can certainly say, has done a quite a good job. Financial markets haven't been surprised at the fact that the Fed has given very clear guidance that very likely that they will start tapering um, next month in, in November. Um, what is your assessment of um, the transparency they've given and then uh, how you expect uh, tapering to occur over the coming months? So I think they've learned a lot from the uh, events of 2013 when they sort of announced tapering and then um, the financial market took fright. Uh, you should not uh, surprise financial markets. Uh, that's not a that's not a good idea. And I think then the problem was that they had not made clear, the markets thought rather, that w- when the Fed started to taper, that is to reduce its monthly bond purchases, that implied that soon thereafter interest rates would be increased. And now they have signaled very, very strongly that the tapering really doesn't provide any information about when they will raise interest rates. So they sort of cut the link between uh, tapering and interest rate increases. And I think that's the uh, that uh, that was very, very important uh, uh, I think. So I suspect that the Fed will start to taper, as you said, and this is our belief, that in, in November, and then they will continue and probably end uh, the tapering as to stop uh, buying completely sometime around uh, around next summer. And then perhaps we will see an interest rate increase six months or a year after that. Of course, this will all depend upon how the data comes in and whether uh, the U.S. economy continues to make progress, but but something like that. So six months of uh, of the uh, reduced purchases, and uh, then uh, um, down to no purchases at all, and then we wait a couple of months or a half a year or so, and then the Fed stops to raise. Uh, so there's uh, interest rates. So as we see today, there's you know a Q4 rate hike uh, by the Federal Reserve is uh, is probably consensus. Would you say, or certainly our view? Yeah, I think so. I think so. This this is uh, this seems like the best the guess right now. But as you know, uh, if data comes in stronger or weaker, the those uh, those days uh, those dates can uh, can change. It's yeah. quite far out, but yeah. for, for the moment that seems like a plausible, uh, very plausible scenario. No, okay. And then once the Fed Reserve starts to raise rates, 
how quickly again i guess it's all very data dependent and what the economy is yes. doing um do you then expect say for example in 2023 that we move to this sort of quarterly cycle of further interest rate increases um um, would that be I think the if the economy is strong, I mean, if I think if the economy is strong, that uh, yeah, that could uh, that could happen. Uh, but again, I mean, it's just very hard at this juncture to uh, to um, guess how far it would go. Yeah. I mean, one factor that suggests that perhaps the tightening of monetary policy will be relatively rapid this time is the fact that the U.S. economy is so strong and there. It looks like we'll have a lot of government spending in the years to come, mm. and with a very strong economy, there would be great need for for higher interest rates. Uh, so this really strong fiscal stimulus would, of course, tend to make was well, suggested the Fed maybe move relatively rapidly. But but, but again, I mean, we just uh, we just don't know. One problem or one difference between central bankers and and financial markets commentators is that financial market commentators, they very often have a very clear view about how fast or they believe that the central bank has taken a view about how quickly they will do it. But in fact, central banks, they, they make one decision at the time and they very rarely develop plans for doing, let's say, two or four increases per year. And they really don't have to. We, we, we take a decision now, we come back and uh, we discuss it again next month or in six weeks from now or eight weeks from now. So um, it's really not something the central banks sort of develop. Uh, you know, they just don't really have plans for the whole path of interest rate. They may have guesses, but they don't really have plans. Very, very interesting. So one meeting at a time uh, is certainly the, the, certainly the central banker's view, where obviously us in the financial markets have to think <laughs> think already sort yes. of six to 12 months or even 18 months ahead of that and obviously often um, draw wrong con- con- conclusions, although certainly financial markets tend to be more right than wrong, uh, you know, over it, time. It's, it's very easy to see where, where this comes from because uh, financial market participants, of course, they are worried about the whole the whole term structure, yeah. you know, up to, you know, 10, 20 year bonds and so on and so forth. And that, the term structure depends upon the entire path of monetary policy over those coming 10 years or 20 years, I don't know, whatever the maturity of, uh, of the bond is. Whereas the central bankers, they typically just set a short-term interest rate. Uh, so they aren't, uh, they have very different time perspectives. Uh, um, uh, so, um, yeah, that's right. That's right. So one of the um, kind of more recent um challenges for the Federal Reserve is obviously losing, you know, two um, uh, members, uh, Kaplan and Rosengren, which uh, recently resigned due to trading issues. Um, uh, How do you think, and obviously now we have nominations of Clarida and Powell as well in the coming months, so potentially a lot of turmoil and maybe even change in some of the... um, group think that uh, develops in in central banks uh, what are your thoughts around um how that might might change uh, you know perspectives well i think first uh, so robert T. kaplan the president of the federal reserve bank in, uh, in dallas and eric rosengren the president of the federal reserve bank in boston they resigned and the reason they resigned is that they had been uh, um uh, a trading in, on their own accounts uh, in ways that were not illegal, but it was just simply inappropriate. And in, in, in that situation, 
they would have lost a lot of credibility and you know they they really weren't viable in those roles um, anymore now the federal reserve uh, the, the presidents of the local federal reserve banks of course um they're not all voters and uh, some vote uh, but not everybody and generally i think they're probably a little bit less influential than the members of the board of governors and the federal reserve system and that is why the issue of the really of the nomination renomination of chair powell and whether vice chairman clarida will stay after his term ends on the at the end of january these are more important issues um powell of course he has um is enjoying the support of uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. And he is thought of very highly by insiders in the Federal Reserve Board. And I think he has done, a, I think, a very, good, a very good job. No one is perfect, and it's not an easy job to have, but I think he's seen as having done well. So I'd be very surprised if he is not renominated. I don't know what will happen to um, Richard Clarida, the, the vice chairman of, of, the, of the Fed, there had also been concerns about some of his uh, some of his trading activities, but those were apparently approved in advance, and he had spoken to and had it cleared with the with the with the ethics officers of the of the board and so on. Um, but um, I don't so I don't know what that where we are with that. Uh, he has he's a professor of economics at the at the Columbia University in. Uh, in New York, he has also been um, uh, a consultant uh, to, to financial institutions, uh, particularly, I think he even had a full-time job at PIMCO. Um, uh, he has an, a very um, keen market interest and so on. So he may think that uh, having done this for a couple of years, um, well, he's unlikely to be appointed chairman. It may well be that he, he, he decides to go back to uh, to the private sector or to the academic uh, sector. In any case, um, he's a very, he's not at all an ideological uh, sort of appointment. Um, uh, he's a sort of main, mainstream central banker. He's done a lot of academic work on, on central banking, but I don't think that he sort of will, is uh, him leaving will not really change the balance in the Fed and is likely to be reappointed or to be followed by someone very similar. Um, I mean, these are very good. Uh, so very capable people, and uh, there are in the U.S. There are so many uh, to draw from. So I suspect that these these uh, um, Powell will follow Powell, and we don't know what's going to happen to Clarida. But uh, but I think this will not impact on the broad uh, sort of balance within the FOMC. Mm. Obviously, lots of commentators speculating whether the Fed Reserve becomes more dovish or um, or uh, you know even more sort of hawkish. Uh, going forward, given these these potential changes, any sort of initial thoughts you just think is really going to stay yeah, well, unchanged? I don't think there are sort of. I mean, it used to be the case when central bankers were much more sort of politically uh, uh, sort of had a much stronger political profile. They were appointed by Republicans or by Democrats, or in Europe, perhaps uh, you know by the political parties in power. Uh, then it had much more of an ideological bent, and of course, that then uh, it made sense to talk about hawks, hawks, and uh, hawks and doves. I think now there are. I mean, I don't think there are uh, 
really hawks and doves in the aviary, if you like. Uh, <laughs> these are people who are uh, who are sort of professionals, central bankers, and sometimes they will be very uh, concerned about inflation and want to tighten monetary policy sharply. And other times they will be unexpectedly, um, you know, uh, prefer an unexpectedly expansion in monetary policy. So it's just it's just very very hard. To judge. It's exactly like you as Supreme Court justices. You, you may appoint them, a Republican president may appoint someone who turns out to be quite liberal, and vice versa. And I think it's the same. Uh, it's the same with most of these appointments, and certainly with the, uh, with the appointments that are not sort of blatantly uh, uh, political. We really haven't had blatantly political appointments. There was a risk of that during the Trump presidency mm, but, mm. but i don't think there's a risk now mm. yeah F- famously trump appointed powell and then hated him straight after <laughs> <laughs> but uh i think uh you know practice uh, pragmatism is really what uh is uh is, is a guy i guess the name of the game so let's f- think about um uh probably the topic of the day is around inflation and i think virtually doesn't a day doesn't go by that someone calls us up and says well what do you think about inflation you know prices going up etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, um um and obviously there's historical parallels that people draw um when they think about inflation um maybe you can sort of articulate you know what those parallels are and where you think those parallels are just wrong in today's environment so the uh, there's now a lot of of, uh, of commentary. People say we haven't been in this situation since the uh, since the 1970s. I talk about remember remember inflation in the 70s. Remember the stagflation in the 1970s and so on. Uh, and um, we did in fact have very high inflation in a number of countries. Some countries uh, experienced inflation rate as high as 10 to 20 percent. And some of the, some developed countries experienced inflation rate in that. Uh, in that in that bracket in that range and um, it, and then as now I think in, uh, inflation was very much driven by energy prices oil prices but there are a number of important differences so now I think energy prices are driven by the global rebound in the economy by increased demand for oil so oil prices go up so we have two forces on the economy because we have higher demand that sort of boosts the economy and that of course also increases oil prices that tends to slow the economy but these sort of forces are are, are uh, you know they are working in opposite directions they may not be equally strong but at least they're operating in work in, in opposite, uh, opposite directions if you go back to the 1970s the real event there were the oil price increases from opec in late 1973 and 1974 and they were massive they were very very large um, and those were not because of a surge in the demand for oil, but rather uh, OPEC wanted to push up prices at the, you know, at the going, uh, sort of, for reasons unrelated to demand. So you just had a, a, a supply contraction, you can think of this. Uh, you, you can think of it. Uh, I think it's probably the best way to think of it. Now, what happened then was that firms' production costs, of course, surged. Um, the economy in those years were much more energy dependent uh, than now. If you just look at how much oil was consumed for each each um, unit of real GDP produced, they just used used a lot of, of oil. And um, higher oil prices reduced wages, and they led to pressures 
for higher wages. Uh, and in, in those years, labor unions were much more important than they are now. And finally, in those years, central banks, this was just after the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rate had collapsed. And central banks were sort of trying to find their feet. Uh, and um, they didn't really know how they should react to this because there were two sort of very sort of, uh, of opposing forces in the economy. One was the surge in inflation, and that called for tight monetary policy. But the other was the large increase in energy prices meant that firms, they become, you know, their production costs rose, many firms went bankrupt, unemployment rose very sharply, and that called for more expansionary monetary policy. Uh, and in those years, there was very little sort of consensus about what an appropriate inflation rate would, was be, would be. So the net outcome then, and it was not really clear what central banks should do, so the net outcome then was that in many countries, expansionary monetary and also fiscal policies were produced, uh, were, were pursued. And that led to this surge in inflation. Uh, from around 1974 onwards to the early to the early 1980s, when inflation was was subdued. And if you look at the current situation, by contrast, it's not very clear that central banks, essentially across the world, have a main objective, and that is essentially for two percent inflation. So they know what they're going to do. Um, it may be that governments don't like them to do that, but then the, we will have to see new instructions to central banks in those countries where this can be done. They can be done in all countries. So I think we have a very different, a very different situation. We have an endogenous or a rise in oil prices due to the strong economy, not an oil price shock. And secondly, we have central banks that have a much clearer view of what they should seek to achieve, which is um, stable and lower price stability. And that is why central banks now uh, across the world have started to tighten monetary policy. Some central banks have done so. For instance, the uh, uh, Bank of Norway has done so. Some emerging market countries have done so. Um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has, has tightened monetary policy and so on. So forth. we talk about the Fed tightening monetary policy or uh, you know, cutting back on, on bond purchases. So I think this is, uh, this is sort of seeing the uh, first reaction in the direction of tightening monetary policy. So I don't think we will get back to the 1970s, but that is what many people are worried about. Mm. And certainly, on the shorter term perspective, one of the one of the things that certainly we've we've seen it. I know that you and Daniel have been um, you know talking about is around the employment situation because obviously you know we need to kind of break inflation out into two components here. The first is obviously commodity prices we've seen at the moment gas prices in in the us and europe uh, and even in in asia kind of spiking higher obviously you know this big draw on making sure this kind of winter security for for gas and that obviously dissipates you've obviously got oil price spike you know at the, at the moment so and commodity prices generally because of those supply chain issues are, are obviously higher so at one end which everybody sees every day and, and people are indeed concerned by. Then you've got wages, which are, you know, is really the the key indicator that most central banks look at very carefully to um, to get a get a sense of whether they should be tightening or, or not. Um, what is your view on um, on a wage and wage inflation generally? We've got these transitory effects, you know, transport workers, haulage workers, hospitality. We've seen a big spike in, in wages. 
Um, but as we move into next year, what are the kind of key things you're looking for? So I, I think this is right. Um, COVID was an enormous shock to the economy. And one thing that we saw initially was a surge in, in, in unemployment up to 15% in the U.S. We saw similar surges, but less pronounced in many other countries. Um, and we also saw uh, that the participation rate, the, the number of people actually sort of the, in, in the labor force uh, sort of fell. And uh, that was compatible with the idea that as, as labor demand sort of fell off and a number of people left the labor force effectively. But if, if and that's just a very weak labor demand, and people tended to adjust the unemployment rate for the falling participation rate, um, suggesting we had really massive unemployment. But as you say, that's not the picture we get from wages. Wages seems to be growing, powering along at four or five percent or so in the U.S. Uh, and if you really had massive, uh, massive on a sort of weakness in the demand for labor, then it's very hard to explain why wage growth, why wages are growing at all. Um, so what I suspect that is going on is actually the labor market isn't as tight uh, um, as some people think. And this idea of adjusting the unemployment rate for the particip- for the participation rate um, may not be s- such a good I- idea. Uh, what I think has happened is that following COVID, a number of people sort of dropped out of the labor force, so they were fired and so on. And in many cases, they left jobs that weren't particularly attractive. For instance, they'd be working, you know, as a, you know, in a bar or in a restaurant or something like that, having lots of contact with people who were not wearing masks who might be infected by COVID, these tended to, are often um, younger people that perhaps had to take care of uh, um, the, their parents that may be sick at home or they may be, have um, small children at home that, they, that we didn't go to school anymore. So to make a long story short, I, th- I think we had a bit of a contraction in the supply of available la- labor. And so... Um, the labor, uh, the unemployment rates that are now down below 5% um, are probably pretty good indicators to my mind about how, how uh, uh, about the uh, labor market conditions. I think the labor market, I wouldn't say tight, but it's certainly not, uh, we don't have massive, we don't have massive uh, unemployment. Um, so uh, I think what how this will sort of pan out depends, I think, very much on whether these people that cut back on their labor supply, whether they can be tempted back into the labor force. And, of course, that is where higher wages come in. A tighter labor market, higher wages, I think, may make some people to sort of, sort of uh, return to the, to, uh, to the labor force. I, I think that, in, in truth, a number of people then question whether the jobs they had before as I said, for instance, I'm working in a bar or whatever. Um, if that was a better job than, for instance, uh, handling packages for, for Amazon or, or or so, I think a number of people have reconsidered what they actually want to do professionally. Um, and uh, over time, they will have better ideas about, about what they really would like to do. And I suspect that gradually this... Uh, fall in the participation rate will uh, will reverse but that will take a long 
a long time. Mm. Um, so to make a long story short, what does, it, what, does it, what does that mean? It means that the labor market is, in fact, I wouldn't say tight, but it's it's not it's not the uh, there's not a great excess uh, excess supply labor that also suggests that the Fed uh, should start tapering. Um, and I suspect that what we'll see is that uh, uh, following from next summer onwards, uh, we will see more people, we will see the participation rate starting to rise again as, as wage increases tend them, mm. them back. I think um, one way um, so numerically to think about this and uh, um, and I think uh, Daniel um, put uh, um, this out the other day. Um, if you use the or the current unemployment rate is four point eight percent, looks pretty yes. pretty decent um, based on the current participation rate. If you use the pre-pandemic participation rate, unemployment rate, the unemployment rate goes up to six point eight. Uh, percent is this yes. is two percentage point unemployment rate swing factor as a result of the uh, participation rate which is the exact point you're making around um people who have um you know decided not going to go to back to work until you know uh, things are, are, are better uh, out there so and i think that really highlights the dilemma the fed has that do they go too soon with a with a, in terms of raising rates with all this slack in the economy potential slack let's put it that way that may come back when covid's gone or, or is completely gone it's quite a delicate balancing act and the same thing for financial market participants is just looking at 4.8 and taking it at face value is also the wrong way to look at it because there is this uh, slack that may be that may be there in the background and, and i think that's a, a really interesting point to make when we look at current conditions relative to those the, the stagflationary periods of the 70s uh, for example i think there is another really interesting point is around a uh, deglobalization and um and it, you know this is something that i think from a secular structural perspective is something that we need to watch you know very carefully because under a deglobalization environment and for example um, jobs need to come back to the US because of supply chain considerations whether the labor market is too tight to absorb deglobalization and i think there are some you know some very strong grounds to challenge that the deglobalization is actually not great for you know the economy and not great for inflation um and um you know I, and i think that's quite interesting you know, if you very very simply put it you know companies that made stuff in the us subcontracted out to china or vietnam or you know uh, india they did that because they couldn't get either the labor locally at the right price <laughs> so if that was to reverse you actually then would naturally mean the leave to, to higher inflation and uh, that's something that um i think as we go forward over the next you know quarters it's not something that's going to change anytime soon but over the next few quarters supply chain and uh, and uh, supply chain security outside of the us is going to be a really really important you know uh, secular development Absolutely, and I think you're quite right in, in pointing to this uh, 
deglobalization sort of as something that is, uh, I mean, we we must certainly see deglobalization. And that will change the inflation process, I think, potentially materially, depending how long that process goes. I suspect that companies, uh, many companies will feel that uh, it's better to produce some of these things at home or buy them from a supplier at home rather than from a supplier in China. Because if there are some disturbances in trade and so on, as we had during COVID, you could be in a very bad, in a bad situation. So we have uh, sort of more local, more local, whatever production, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I think the whole supply chain becomes more, more local. And that means that uh, if you do have a pickup in economic activity, uh, chance you will not sort of get cheap goods from the rest of the world. You will, you will have, uh, uh, goods coming from home that are going to be more sensitive to, lo- to economic developments in home, and a little uh, an increase in demand will be more inflationary. I think indeed, so the, 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 it will have a big change. I think cumulatively, not in, in one quarter or two quarters, but if you, if you think of monetary policy in twenty thirty one, it could look quite different from what it looks uh, like now. Particularly, I think in the UK, because one consequence of uh, or Brexit, I think, for, for instance, um, their supply chains in terms of labor, uh, having less uh, or less access to foreign labor markets means that a pickup in economic activity in the UK will have to be met by more workers in the UK and to induce people in the UK to sort of join the labor market, uh, perhaps retire later or join it earlier drop out of school and, and join it, you, you need higher higher salaries. So I suspect that we'll see uh, perhaps um, a, a stronger association between local economic sort of conditions, local economic growth and local wage and price inflation. Mm. That has been uh, severe, I wouldn't say severe, but it's been cut or, or lower or weakened uh, by globalization. And this process of deglobalization, I think, is very likely to... Uh, to run the whole, to run the watch in reverse. So um, I think you're quite right there. Mm. Yeah, certainly uh, it's a very interesting topic and something that uh, certainly EFT will be keeping a very close eye on. I mean, obviously we can get carried away with these stories, but, uh, you know, in the end, always, you know, come back to earth and think that from a, on a, on a deflationary sort of viewpoint, long-term structural deflationary viewpoints, you know, I always go back to, you know, autonomous, you know, driving or autonomous vehicles, uh, ultimately very, very deflationary, you know, no need for taxi drivers, probably no need for cars, you know, you won't need as many because you can just uh, haul one and automatically re- turn up at your door and you can just get in, go anywhere you want. And, and that's a, those are big deflationary forces, uh, technological forces. And then on top of that, you always have the fact that we we're moving to a more aging population um obviously in 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 europe that's a, a much more of an acute problem but in the next 10 to 15 years that same problem will be replicated in china and and, and other places yes. so you know um so i think you know with all of these sort of thought processes one long-term thought processes one needs to you know, not get carried away because you still have these long-term forces in place as well. Indeed, and they can be very, very difficult to spot because they don't change things very much from one quarter to the next quarter or even one year to the next year. It's sort of gradually changing backdrop to uh, to the to the economy and uh, 
by the time you realize that, whoops, the situation has changed, it can be a little bit too late for policymakers to design effective policies to deal, to deal with this. And we do see it, for instance, in the, in the non-economic area of global warming. And finally, uh, people have come to realize that actually we probably have, we, we do have global warming. And now policymakers across the world are sort of scrambling to find a, a good uh, a good solution would be much better if one had seen this uh, 20 years ago or or so and be able to adopt new policies that are um you know more gradually and uh, i suspect this is the uh, i think the same thing may have happened with uh, with inflation i think uh, inflation has been running low for a long period of time and i think only gradually did policy central banks come around to the view that perhaps globalization was a a driving factor and mm. when that process started in the reverse you could have the same outcome mm-hmm. exactly very uh, very interesting so let's move closer to home again um and uh, or distance wise at least anyway um obviously moving up to other central banks we have the bank of england um uh, you know looking as though they're probably going to raise rates in uh, in november um any any sort of further thoughts on that other than it's moved very. It came around very quickly, yeah, for the UK. Yes. Uh, no. I think our view is indeed that the Fed, uh, that the Bank of England will, will will raise interest rates in 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 November. But I suspect thereafter they will go slow. Right. And one reason for that is yes, very. Uh, so with other central banks, and I think one important factor there is. Um, debt stocks sort of have have surged across the world. And it's not entirely clear what will happen when when interest rates turn north for the first time in a very, very long time. And there are people uh, who have never seen, any, who, sort of, who during their adult lives have never seen a central bank raise interest rates. <laughs> uh, so, so I think central banks would be very worried about what the reactions would be, for instance, in the housing market, uh, what the reactions would be with companies that have borrowed large amounts and so on. So I suspect we'd have a very, the economy would be very sensitive to interest rate increases and that suggests that central banks would go very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at maybe a, a initial marker on the, from the Bank of England and then maybe a much more slower trajectory to, uh, and as incoming data comes along. Um, yes, I mean, uh, this idea that, so in the past, what typically happened when central banks tightened monetary policy, 25 basis points is neither here nor there. Mm. And what they did is they, for instance, they increased 25 basis points in January. They did another 25 basis points in March. Perhaps they waited to the, to July and did another 25 basis points there. And sort of the cumulative increase of perhaps 150 basis points over a year or, or something like that, that has had, uh, uh, had an impact. But, but uh, now with the economy being probably more sensitive, to monetary policy, I suspect the path would be would be much slower. And moreover, um, I think central banks would simply be much less certain about what the effects would be of higher monetary policy. And if you don't really know sort of what's going to happen when you do something, then do less of it. It's, it's mm. a good uh, it's a good uh, strategy. So so I suspect we will see very slow in, uh, first increase by the by the Bank of England, and then we will see very slow increases there. Mm. So moving on then to, uh, I, I like your terminology in terms of generational uh, um, interest rate interest rate hikes. I 
we haven't seen one. ECB hasn't seen one. <laughs> Gosh, when was the last last time the ECB actually hiked interest I mean, rates? I think it was in 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 the spring and summer of two thousand and and eleven, and that, that that was widely seen. Certainly now, that was widely seen. It's now widely seen as having been a very big mistake. Yeah. Uh, many other central banks have not raised interest rates uh, since two thousand eight or something to nine. So uh, yeah, there are people who, who uh, yeah. If you if you're certainly if you're twenty five now, you may not you're doing your adult life. You may never have seen an interest rate increase. <laughs> It's quite astonishing. Well, in fact, you could even be older, right? You could be. Uh, it depends on your definition of adulthood, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, certainly ten years is uh, is a uh, is a long time. Yeah, you, you know, if you think of someone taking the, uh, a mortgage, and then they may say, "Look," they may think, "Look, interest rates are really low. They are very, very low right now. So why don't we get a larger mortgage and buy a slightly bigger house than we planned?" Um, and they may simply not be aware that um, interest rates in the past, there have been episodes where interest rates have risen sharply, most obviously in the US between 2004 and 2006, that had a very big impact on the housing market. If you don't have that sort of private experience or personal experience, uh, you may uh, underestimate the risk of a movement in the, of movement in the, uh, in interest rates. Rates and not and not uh, you know you may you may have overborrowed. You realize when rates go up, you realize, whoops, I can't uh, uh, I can't I can't uh, service these loans anymore. I can't you know I have to the, the interest rate will be reset next month and uh, it'll be difficult to deal with this. Mm. Um, that's an, 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 yeah, and that that sensitivity is a really key point here because um, as the amount of debt that you that you have. Um, the more likely uh, you're impacted by even marginal, you know, rate increases, um, and that behaviour could 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 certainly change that, and that of course then becomes deflationary. <laughs> so you 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 do yes. have these you do have this uh, you do have these impacts. Yes, exactly. So so people that have unexpected large mortgage bills to pay, what do they do? They cut back on other spending. Mm. And of course, this is also true for governments, right? Mm. If, if governments have a, a stock of debt to, to GDP, which is 40%, but if interest rates go up one percentage points, well, that's not much. If you have a if you have an, an increase, uh, if you have debts that are 150 200% of GDP and rates go up one percentage points, we're talking, we're talking um, serious money here. Mm. And again, also for firms. So with the economy, with debts being so large, it's clear that monetary policy or interest rate policy would be, could be very effective. And, uh, and it's also clear that the effects could also be very uncertain. So mm. I think all of this uh, suggests a lower path for interest rates, slower increases. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah, I think the only way you can really f- focus on this is you know, macro prudential policy sort of yes. something as what, what we've seen in China. Yes. You know, they've they've uh, just made it very difficult to get a mortgage on a, on a property, for example, and that in itself, you know, um, makes uh, you know ultimately slows down the ascent of property prices and and yes. and so on and so forth. So I suspect you know macro prudential policy certainly as we move forward uh, post uh, post pandemic. Um, you know, will will become maybe center as more of a centerpiece of policy. Uh, you know, going yeah, forward. 
I mean, it's some countries like Switzerland has 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 been uh, has been very good in this regard. Housing prices have have risen very sharply in Switzerland, but not so much because of borrowing. Borrowing has been has been subdued. The same thing is true in Ireland, which of course had a catastrophic housing bubble. Uh, prices have risen there, but not fueled by by lending. Um, uh, and I think going forward, I think more as you suggest, more and more countries would say there is something to these mortgage lending restrictions. Of course, the politics work in the wrong direction. In some countries, there's a very strong sense that everybody should be able to buy a house and uh, you need to get into onto the housing ladder early on in life and you buy your first apartment when you leave university. And with with uh, central banks telling banks that you know you need to ask for a 30% bond down payment or 20% down payment, there are many people who now can't enter the housing uh, the housing market. And then you have political pressure uh, on the central bank or the financial supervisory authorities uh, that have introduced these uh, rules. What, we, what people don't generally know is that if you go back, for instance, to the financial crisis in 2008, the message there was very clear. The, the countries that had the highest home ownership ratios which tended to be the, uh, the English-speaking countries, uh, were very, severe, uh, very severely hit, or more severely hit than countries that had lower home ownership ratios. It's not only English-speaking countries, but for, for instance, a, a country like, I think the worst uh, case was um, Croatia, which had a, uh, where people were buying houses, borrowing and buying, and buying houses, and then when you had the big, the big shock, uh, the housing market just collapsed. Uh, and that has a very, very contractionary impact on the economy. So this idea that we should all have uh, uh, houses, uh, it's a very nice idea, but it's also very risky for banks to lend to everybody. Mm, Absolutely. Um, So um, I think our time is up, um, Stefan. Um, It's been absolutely fascinating uh, as ever uh, to talk to you. And uh, uh, I have to say, each time I you know, interview on the podcast, I'm always coming back and thinking, oh, hadn't thought about that. So thank you very much for your, uh, thank for, you. for your inputs. Thank you very much. These are, I think what the, the podcasts are very interesting because it's sort of, uh, the question tends to have a slightly longer horizon. It's not sort of what did the Fed do yesterday? What, what might happen? Uh, what might the ECB do tomorrow? But it's more the, the tectonic plates, uh, philosophizing about what they would, uh, what they will do. And, uh, I think also the fact that we tend to we tend to do these recordings at the end of the day, one has one more reflective mood. Uh, <laughs> changes changes the style very much. I enjoy them too. Uh, I tend to scribble down little notes about points I want to want to get across and so on. So it's, it's you know it's it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Great. Well, uh, always fun to talk to you. So Stefan, thank you very much uh, again. And uh, for our listeners, um, lots of pearls of wisdom here. And we'll um, record more Pearls of Wisdom for you next week. Uh, So we'll see you again soon.